This podcast is dedicated to the dissemination of explicit language. But not today. Today we play it all nice-like with the naughty words. Hello, GIST fans or people overhearing the GIST as it blasts from boomboxes that beset our urban landscape. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. We bring you one great interview from the week, one great interview from the past, to the past, but also to the future and space, space. On the show this week, I talked about the new space probe that's taking pictures, the web, and of course I had to address the disgusting Hubble thrusting its fuzzy pictures upon us. But that's not what I'm talking about. It turns out that I have long, and I'm just realizing this now as I go over past episodes, I have long harbored an almost anthropomorphic mm, passion for spacecraft. And in 2026, I spoke up on the show on behalf of the Juno spacecraft, which was photographing Jupiter and moons, probably not photographing, but acquiring images of Jupiter and moons of Jupiter. And the plan was for a little Juno to intentionally commit suicide in the atmosphere of Jupiter, lest it contaminate the moon Europa with microbes that it picked up on Earth. Well, that was in 2016. And I had a conversation about that and about Juno. Turns out the postscript for this is Juno is still alive. They extended the mission past 2018. They were going to kill her. I'm going to call her her thinking of uh, now Elliot Page. Can't can't get the picture of Juno uh, unassociated with that movie. Uh, They're going to keep it alive until 2021. It goes. It goes on. Much like the heart of the Celine Dion formulation, it goes on, and you will get to hear my interview with astrophysicist Summer Ash. But first, I had Graham Wood on the show to talk about the Joe Biden visit to Saudi Arabia. The centerpiece of that conversation was uh, his, Wood's, meeting with the crown prince, and also his reporting from the country. The social headline of that piece was Inside the Palace with Mohammed bin Salman. But he went outside the palace. He went to the countryside. He just executed an excellent piece of travel reporting and anthropology and the kind of reporting that, as you'll hear in this interview, I thought is kind of rare, where you say, this is a weird and interesting place. I'll say it. It's weird. So enjoy the Graham Wood conversation, which did not air this week, although the full conversation aired. This is full, fresh bonus content and my conversation from 2016 with Summer Ash. I just want to uh, compliment the fact that you acknowledge that so much of this is weird. I think in travel writing today or observations of the world, there's a reluctance to just acknowledge this is some weird stuff going on, but you couldn't avoid it. Yeah, it's weird. And I I would also add it's weird in a way that that we should appreciate, too. I mean, we think of many of the weird ways that Saudi Arabia distinguishes itself as being pre-modern and unpleasant, you know, beheadings, that's, that's pretty weird and bad. But it, it's also a country that has really persisted in its own ways and has not integrated into the whole global system culturally and otherwise. And I, I kind of like that. 
And the reason, let's be clear, the reason it was able to so successfully insulate itself is it has this resource that the world is, however you want to say it, dependent on, addicted to. And that gives leadership a lot of leeway, does it not? Yeah, that has allowed it to isolate itself. But, you know, even before that, Saudi Arabia was not colonized in the same way that that other states in the area were. So it it has remained its own thing for, for good and for ill. But, you know, in the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, it's been oil. And oil has allowed it to get away with a lot of things that any other state wouldn't have been able to. But now its own thing is transforming to a slightly different thing. There's Vision 2030. And is this, as uh, MBS would say, this is an attempt at modernization. But can you tell us how Saudi-specific the process is and where his vision is that he wants to take the country to? Uh, a, A modern country comparable to others or the Saudi version of a modern country? Yeah, so Vision 2030 is this plan that was unveiled by the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, saying by the year 2030, we will have transformed the kingdom. And the thing that is similar to other countries is that transforming the kingdom means diversifying the economy, making it a place where people want to go, making it a place where you can go and, you know, go to concerts and uh, do all sorts of things that were forbidden is by Islamic law previously. So that's all the stuff that makes Saudi modern in a familiar sense to us. And then there's other aspects which would be extremely unfamiliar to, say, an American. Uh, They're not going to get any more democratic. It's going to be, in fact, more autocratic than it was in the past. And it's going to be very different just generally politically from, from anything that I think you or I would be comfortable living in. So in that way, it's still Saudi in, a, in its own unique way. The, the other thing that's, that's really strange, though, about this is just the speed with which it's happening. So Saudi Arabia was extremely tribal and pre-modern and continues to be in a lot of ways. And 2030 is not that many years away. So the speed that they're doing these changes is pretty much unlike any other country in the, in the, in the modern world. China transformed through central state planning, Dubai, a small country, but established itself as an exceptional country in the Middle East. Are those uh, blueprints for Saudi or even if they're not for the kingdom itself, are they a way for us to understand how and where Saudi is going or wants to go? Yeah, Saudi has, uh, through through MBS, the crown prince, they, they have looked at uh, Dubai, uh, they've looked at China. They looked at Singapore as successful models for this kind of modernization without political liberalization. And, you know, they're still looking around. The, the crown prince and Saudi Arabia in general, they look to the United States culturally in a lot of ways. In Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of hatred for the United States and a lot of envy of the United States and love of the United States among common Saudi people. So it's as if they want to have that kind of modernization with those other countries as models, but they also want to have American culture in a way that those other countries have have not quite embraced in the same way. Mm -hmm. And uh, an outsider might think, well, for how long can you keep the lid on a movie theater or women driving? Was there a tension? Just modernity was forcing itself upon Saudi Arabia, so the crown prince got on board? So the Crown Prince could have uh, forbidden movie theaters and concerts for another 20 or 30 years, no problem. It, I mean, it, the place is an absolute monarchy in a way that it just there's, there's no other uh, analog except, I don't know, maybe Brunei or North Korea. So he could have said, we're going to keep it this way. 
What he couldn't have done, I think, is stopped Saudis from going overseas. Now, there was this exodus from Saudi Arabia anytime he wanted to have fun. So young Saudis would cross the causeway into Bahrain. They would drink. They would go to whorehouses. They would go to movies. They'd go to the UK for, for concerts. So eventually, it w- would be unsustainable. And so it, it, the, the political liberalization was, was not a certainty, it, but the world was encroaching on Saudi in this way where... unless he just forbade people from traveling overseas, which the Saudi state did try to do once upon a time, then the world was going to, to, um, the world was going to be, um, you know, in Saudi Arabia culturally one way or another. But it was important, and you note this, for all the liberalization to be credited and at the will of the crown prince. So even though there were women groups, when they got their way with women driving, he made the point to jail the leaders of these groups. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. But yes, you won the fight. Now go to jail because it's my decision, not yours. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it is bizarre and ironic, which I understand why you're laughing about it. Lujain al-Hathlul is a Saudi woman, young Saudi woman, who was well known for for agitating for the right of women to drive cars. And MBS told me, he said he's always been in favor of allowing women to drive cars. And sure enough, when he came to power, that's one of the things that that happened, was he allowed that to happen. He also jailed Lujain al-Hathlul, not because she wanted women to be able to drive cars because he's okay with that, but because she did it on her own schedule rather than on, on his. He wants credit for it. And he, he says, look, I'm the one who gets to decide these things. It's not a right that you have inherently. It's a right that I grant you, just like all rights that you have as a Saudi citizen. So Lujain was not just uh, jailed. Uh, according to her family, she was tortured. She was told that she was going to be chopped up in little bits and thrown into the sewer. Mm-hmm. And to this day, although she's no longer in jail, she's not allowed to speak publicly. She's not allowed to travel. Her family's not allowed to travel. So they really play hardball, even with the people who, in some ways, they, they agree with. Is she allowed to drive? I believe she is allowed to drive. Women driving in Saudi Arabia is uh, it's a non-issue. There's it, it, women driving all over the place. Uh, and that that kind of thing happened because the royal family said, we're doing it this way. And um, there's not even any controversy about it when the moment happened, when they could get their licenses and get on the road. I don't know. Our modern minds can't get around that. It seems an affront not just to our sensibilities, but something something akin to our sense of uh, uh, effective leadership. But, you know, so there are many autocrats, but almost all of on Earth, almost all of them uh, give nods to being a democratic or people uh, supported leader, a democratic republic of this and people's republic of that. Maybe it is the case that if you are a king or a crown prince acting essentially as a king and you make no bones about the kingdom and your place within it, maybe there is a, a logic and it's functional for how he wants to run the government to, you know, take to even um, suppress and oppress dissidents whose agenda you wind up agreeing with. Yeah, I, I think one thing, one criticism you cannot give for MBS or for Saudi Arabia in general is that it doesn't obey its own internal logic. There is a tribal logic. There is a logic of monarchies. MBS, when I spoke to him, 
he was actually really interesting to, to hear talk about this, where he said, look, there's not just one monarchy here, although there is one monarchy at the top, and, and my father, the, the aging king, is the king. But he said that there's local monarchies. The way that Saudi Arabia is set up is with little, tiny um, tribal monarchies, and every monarch has his own monarch. And then eventually you get to the very top, and it's my father who's allowing me to rule in his stead. So he was suggesting, I think correctly, that, that Saudi Arabia has had a system of government uh, like this for, for quite some time, and that it's complex, and that there have been checks that have, have developed to make sure that it keeps on working, and uh, that they're not going to change it just because they see that the rest of the world is interested in democracy, because, because it works. And because people are, are reliant on it, he says, I can't commit a coup against 34 million people in Saudi Arabia by telling them, okay, your system no longer works and I'm no longer going to be king. So we're going to stick with what we've got, which is an absolute monarch, which in a few years, upon the death of his father, will be him. So in all your reporting uh, stories and all your reporting uh, travails and adventures. How does meeting the crown prince of Saudi Arabia compare to meeting other notable world leaders or important people? It's among the most uh, surreal interviews that I've ever done. Uh, and it's definitely unlike meeting major politicians in the United States where you, know, you, you get wanded and go into the Oval Office and then you sit down and you talk with someone. It, instead, with MBS, uh, especially during COVID, because he was sequestered with his elderly father, and so they were doing whatever they could to, to, to keep them isolated. It was like, at the last minute, show up at an airstrip, um, get on a plane, and once you're in the plane, you will have no interaction with any cabin crew because you'll be in the bubble of a Gulfstream jet, and then fly off into the desert at a, a, a totally empty airport. And then once you're there, get driven off to what turns out to be a literally a Fairmont hotel that's that's been built in the middle of the desert for the use of the royal family. A, a branded Fairmont hotel that, that you and I can't stay in under normal circumstances. Huh. And then you show up and um, a after getting some luxury treatment as you wait for the moment to, to happen, in, in this case it was about 1.30 in the morning when MBS finally let us in, and uh, it was me and my, my editor, Jeffrey Goldberg. We showed up there, and then we ha had a couple hours of conversation with him. But um, there is really nothing like it. I mean, the, even to the point of, if you look on Google Maps, the place where you are has nothing in it. It's just emptiness next to the Red Sea. And then huh. once you're, when you're on the ground, it, it feels like some kind of uh, luxury resort. So. Um, let's just say the Saudi royal family lives differently from you and me. <laughs> uh, I would, I would guess. Graham Wood is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. Thanks, Graham. Thank you, Mike.
The other day on this program, we were talking about the Juno space thing capsule. Is it a capsule? We're going to find out. Because even though I was popping off about not liking the fact that they destroyed this beautiful little capsule for the sake of a couple microbes and Europa, I realized perhaps there is a lot to learn about Juno and the exploration of Jupiter. So joining me now is Summer Ash. She is an, I hope it's not overstating it to say that she is an expert in astrophysics. She is the director of outreach for Columbia's Department of Astronomy. Hello. Let us talk about Juno. Let's. You're an astrophysicist, which means mostly looking through the telescope type person. Particularly me when I did it, but um, you can be a theorist. Mm -hmm. So not everybody looks through the telescopes or some people just use other people's data. Is what Juno is doing, is that the best way to describe that is that astrophysics. Well, sometimes it ter- comes down to semantics, but it's more planetary science, Okay, I think. But a lot of the things that Juno is studying, um, especially magnetic fields, that's something that's important across all space fields, yes. and especially in astrophysics. Yes, and indie rock. But are there, or indie, I guess, pop, but are there questions that after Juno's done, we will certainly have answers to? I don't think there's a guarantee, mm-hmm. but it's kind of strange how long Jupiter has been a part of our culture and a part of our scientific endeavors and how much we still don't know about it. What don't we know? We still have no idea if it has a core. Really? Or, I mean, there is a core. There's a center of the planet, but we have no idea what's there, whether it's liquid, whether it's solid, how dense it is, what its composition is. How is Juno going to find that out? So it has a ton of different instruments on it. One is specifically a microwave instrument that will be able to see through the cloud layers. And that's mostly actually to detect the composition of the deeper cloud layers. But then it also has a ton of like magnetometers and different instruments that are going to be studying the magnetic field, which also will tell us more about what could be causing it. So like it's going to be a combination of all the different instruments that will tell us what likely lies deep inside the planet, and then exactly how that influences the magnetic field around Jupiter, which is a pretty dangerous zone for and, Juno. And, and, and for be, it has to be there. We can't do this from here on Earth. We have to have this thing travel a billion and a half miles to get these facts back to us. Yeah, because Juno's actually going to be flying through the radiation belts. So Earth has the Van Allen belts, mm-hmm. which is part of our magnetosphere, and Jupiter's uh, exposure, like radiation that Juno is going to get, is the equivalent of 100 medical x-rays. Yes. 100 million 100 medical million. x-rays. I heard that stuff. On a human. So I basically, don't know that I could relate to it. But yeah, yeah it's a lot but it's, of It's radiation. our magnetic field on crack. <laughs> yes, our magnetic field on crack. I would sign up for that ride at Disneyland. Um, <laughs> and, and this took how many years to get it up there? It took five. It actually took yeah. one of the most direct approaches, but also that was because of the planetary alignment. So it launched in August 2011. And it's worked pretty well. I mean, pretty much according to plan. And the, it, the interesting thing to me is it's not just where we aim it. It has to take into effect the gravitational pull of Jupiter, maybe some other planets along the way. I don't even know. So it seems like there's all these calculations. All right, here, we're going to shoot it here, and, but we think Jupiter's going to move it there, and then it will, and then there's this slingshot thing. So even if it wasn't actually bringing back information, just to get it in place is kind of an amazing achievement. Absolutely. There's a really funny thing, too, that we still struggle with in math in general, the three-body problem. 
So modeling anything, predicting gravitational effects between any two bodies, no problem. Throw a third one in there, yeah. all hell breaks loose for how precise you can predict things and, and in what time frame. And then you think of the solar system, and not only do you have the sun and you have massive planet like Jupiter, um, but Jupiter has moons and Jupiter has a ring. And Jupiter has hundreds of moons. Jupiter yeah, less has, than 100, but more than 60 well, or 70. But aren't there a lot of things that could be moons that are surrounding Jupiter? We will know more, yes. thanks to Juno, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it's got a dust ring. And so, yeah, everything pulls on everything. It doesn't yeah. matter how big or how small. And so that's also one of the things. Another way they're going to find out the core is that they are going to detect the gravitational, minuscule gravitational differences in Juno's orbit, because mm-hmm. when it flies over a more dense part of Jupiter, it's going to get more of when a tug. Juno does, yes. Yeah, yeah, and when it gets less of a tug, so we will measure this ping from Juno that will tell us, I got pulled more, I got pulled less, and that'll help map out the gravitational field, too. That is very cool. Jupiter is the first planet, the oldest planet in the solar system. We think so. We think so. Is that true of solar systems, the oldest planet is the biggest? Is that just a coincidence? I don't think we can say for sure. I think what's really interesting for us and what we want to find out more about is that Jupiter for us is the biggest, yeah. but it's not the closest. Right. But by composition, because it's mostly hydrogen and helium, we think that it sucked up everything that was left over that the sun didn't get, and then everybody else got the leftovers of that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the exoplanet systems that we found so far, it's easier to find big planets close in. So we're finding Jupiter-sized planets and bigger, closer in. Huh. And so it's a question of where do they form and do they migrate and do they, you know, get destroyed and reform in the process. So it's, that's other questions about planetary formation in general. I know Jupiter is uh, has a strong gravitational pull. A person weighing 100 pounds on Earth would weigh 240 pounds on Jupiter, I think was the statistic I saw. It all depends if you eat breakfast or not. We know that. <laughs> so you talked about all the gases. Is there solid ground? Could you set foot on Jupiter? That's what we don't know. Oh, we don't we even do know, know We do know. So p- underneath the cloud layers, but not very far down, the uh, hydrogen is under enough pressure that it's liquid. Uh-huh. And so that's what's also helping create a lot of the magnetic fields. It can conduct electricity. But we don't know beyond that what the density of Jupiter does and if there happens to be even a rocky core. Because a lot of, you know, the inner planets, um, Venus and once Mars and Earth, all have rocky cores with gas around them. What do you mean once Mars? It used to? Yeah. I mean, it has a very, very, very thin one right now. Oh. That's why they have dust storms, because there is an atmosphere. It disintegrated over the years, the core? Evaporated, probably. evaporated. Interesting. The red spot. Is this a big question mark? I'm fascinated by the red spot. And I say don't change. I know there's a lot of pressure, but I think Jupiter should love its red spot and not get that corrected. But anyway, what do we know about the red spot? That's like in the solar system yearbook. Everybody else says to Jupiter, you know, don't change. Stay the exactly. same. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Have a great summer. Yeah, never change. Well, the red spot's totally what got me into Jupiter in the first place, too. Yeah. Like, Jupiter's always been my favorite planet, and the red spot was, was the kicker. We know that it's a giant storm, and even I think Galileo knew that it was there back when he had his tiny little telescope. So we've known about it for over 400 years. And I know when I was growing up, it was roughly three times the Earth's size in diameter. And now it's like a little over one. So it's shrinking. And also one of the things I learned, I did um, an article looking at all the different other missions that had been to Jupiter before, Mm because there were eight others that had either flown by and one that stayed, Galileo. But even during the Voyager missions, they took pictures of Jupiter. And at the time, the red spot was in a white band of clouds. And then by the time 
we got more pictures from Cassini. The red spot was in an orange band of clouds. Huh. Do the people in NASA, the people who are experts on these things, do they view Galileo as a success, Cassini as a success, all these past ones as successes? Has there ever been a failure? Among those, those are all smashing successes. Yeah. Galileo was there from 95 to 2003. Yeah. And it was our workhorse for Jupiter. We learned so many things about Jupiter thanks to Galileo. And Cassini is still doing great stuff at Saturn, even though it's going to get decommissioned, I think, in like less than a year, a little over a year. Both of those were amazing successes. I think the only like failures we've had are a couple of the ones that like didn't make it to Mars or didn't land as softly as they should have. Yeah. But otherwise... Most of the planetary missions have been fantastic. Cassini's still working. Galileo, what happened to Galileo? We also killed Galileo by slamming it into Jupiter. And this brings up the thing that jumped out at me. Really, microbes are going to wreck a moon? Microbes are really small by definition, and moons of Jupiter are quite big, moons of every planet. Actually, Europa, I was just reading, is actually smaller than our moon. But really, a microbe is going to screw up a whole planet? That's what happened to Earth. What? Microbes. So I'm glad. Microbes are why we're here. Okay. So then we should put microbes out there. Without microbes, there'd be no Galileo and Juno mission to rob them of microbes when you (laughs) think about it. But so the microbes on Earth giving rise to us is like N equals one. It's our one example of life evolving in the solar system, galaxy, universe. So we want to know if it happens more than once. And so both Europa around Jupiter and Enceladus around Saturn um, are prime examples of where we have detected liquid water. And so we want to be able to study it without bringing contamination from Earth. But what's the chance that it would crash into Europa just by accident? I mean, I mean, it's probably very small, but like I was saying with the gravitational, everything pulls on everything mm -hmm. that eventually it's going to run out of gas. And also, eventually, Jupiter's radiation is going to irradiate all of its instruments. So it will be less controllable. It's not just that microbes can contaminate anywhere in space. I mean, we're crashing Juno into Jupiter. The concern isn't that we'll contaminate Jupiter. It's specific interstellar bodies where we have detected some water and where there might be life. And so this is why people talk about, I mean, very either far-fetched or far in the future, what if we have a colony on Mars? You know, someone asked me, how can we on the one hand talk about having a colony on Mars and on the other hand be so concerned about microbes in Jupiter? But that's the answer. We're not concerned about microbes in Jupiter. We're concerned about microbes on Europa. Yeah, we're concerned about microbes on Europa. And actually, I mean, there is concern or there is a question of whether or not life did exist on Mars. And a lot of people think that we've potentially already contaminated Mars. Really? Um, like with the rovers that we've sent. So there is no guarantee that we'll, if we do detect something that we'll be able to distinguish it from what was on Earth. But Why, I think there will have, might be ways to do that. The so. best practices weren't in place when we put the rovers or were we just like, yeah, we know, but we really need to study Mars. No, actually, I think it's more since the very first Mars landings, we've learned so much more about extremophiles. And how bad we are. Well, no, just, <laughs> just how awesome how crazy places on Earth can be and life can still live Yeah. next to like the thermal vents in the ocean and in Antarctica or through ice things and things that live without light yeah. and that kind of thing. And so it's hard to say what can still survive a spacecraft journey through space. Got it. It's kind of nuts. 
When you see the success, the apparent success so far, it's been so successful and it's so exciting. Does it break your heart a little when you look at the pipeline for what we have? It does. It seems you like NASA has been largely. Yeah, it seems like NASA has been largely defunded, and we don't have any of these uh, interplanetary missions scheduled for a little while. Well, we have a lot of studies going on. We have a couple of cool telescopes coming down the line. So JWST, which is like the Hubble replacement, but it's going to actually be more in the infrared, and it's going to be farther away, so we can't ever fix it. So we have to get it right the first time. Yeah. That's going to be really exciting. I know there's a ton of studies going on, which is how these missions always start. Everybody looks into what do we want to do next? How, how should we go about doing it? So I think there's, um, there's like a Europa Clipper mission, which would be a mission to Europa itself Yeah, to try and study that. And there's all sorts of crazy ways that people are coming up with how we could actually explore Europa's ocean. So by actually sending down like a moon rover, but... When you put it down in the water, it actually inverts upside down and uses buoyancy to float back up so the wheels are on the bottom of the ice, and then you can drive it. Oh, that's cool. That, that'd Isn't be that cool crazy? here. Yeah. I want to do that here. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. they're testing the stuff like that in Antarctica. That's awesome. So give us the timeline on how long Juno's going to be doing its thing, and when, we, when could we uh, circle on our calendar for the days we start getting a lot smarter? <laughs> Let's see. So it launched in October. August of 2011, and then the 4th of July this year, five years, almost five years later, it got to Jupiter, slammed on the brakes for 35 minutes, enough to decelerate to get captured into Jupiter's orbit. But what they're doing is they're actually doing two orbits that are much larger than the final orbits that they're going to do for the rest of the mission. And they're doing that in order to, first of all, just check out that all the instruments are okay, Mm -hmm. and then check out that all the science instruments are working the way they're supposed to do because there's a limited amount of the actual mission orbits that we're going to have between now and February 2018. How long does it take to do a full orbit of Jupiter, a planet a thousand times Earth's size? Well, the particular, you, you can orbit, you can make up an orbit depending on what you want to do. So what Juno is doing is these first two orbits are 53 and a half day orbits. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to go into a 14-day orbit. But even that 14-day orbit is really, really elliptical. So what it does is it's going to fly through the danger zone of the radiation and take all of these measurements around the equator of Jupiter, fly back out its polar orbit, and then it's going to go way out, outside of the range of the radiation. So it's only once per orbit that it's getting bombarded at a level that's really dangerous. Well, Kenny Loggins said it first, but it's, it obtains to this day. Welcome to the Danger Zone. Little known fact, Brian Adams offered that song, turned it down because of the warlike message of Top Gun. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Summer, I think we've taken a little bit of a detour, unlike the Juno spacecraft. That is my fault. I want to thank you. No problem. Thank you for having me. I love talking about space. Summer Ash is the Director of Outreach for Columbia's Department of Astronomy. She writes about science, too. She loves Jupiter. Thank you, Summer. Thank you. And that's it for The Saturday Show. Thanks to Corey Wara and Joel Patterson, the assistant and senior producer, respectively. And I will talk to you on Monday.